Section 9 of Library of the World's Best Literature, Ancient and Modern, Volume 13. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rita Boutros. Library of the World's Best Literature, Ancient and Modern, Volume 13. Edited by Charles Dudley Warner. Section 9. Maria Edgeworth, 1767-1849. The famous author of Irish novels and didactic tales was the daughter of Richard Lovell Edgeworth and his first wife, Anna Ayres, and was born at Blackburton, Oxfordshire, January 1, 1767. When she was twelve years old, the family settled on the estate at Edgeworth's town, County Longford, Ireland, which was her home during the remainder of her long life. It was a singularly happy family circle, of which Maria was the centre. Her father married four times, and had twenty-two children, on whom he exercised his peculiar educational ideas he devoted himself most particularly to maria's training and made her his most confidential companion several of her works were written in conjunction with her father and over almost all he exercised a supervision which doubtless hindered the free expression of her genius her first publication letters to literary ladies on the education of women appeared in seventeen ninety five this was followed by educational and juvenile works illustrating the theories of mr edgeworth the parents assistant practical education a joint production supplemented later by early lessons rosamond harry and lucy and a sequel to the parents assistant in eighteen hundred appeared castle rackrent the first of her novels of irish life and her best-known work soon followed by belinda and the well-known essay on irish bulls by her father and herself miss edgeworth's reputation was now established and on a visit to paris at this time she received much attention here occurred the one recorded romance of her life the proposal of marriage from count edelkrantz a swedish gentleman on her return she wrote leonora in eighteen o four she published popular tales in eighteen o nine the first series of fashionable tales these tales include almeria and the absentee considered by many critics her masterpiece patronage was begun years before as the freeman family in eighteen seventeen she published harrington and Ormond, which rank among her best works. In the same year, her father died, leaving to her the completion of his memoirs, which appeared in 1820. Her last novel, Helen, published in 1834, shows no diminution of her charm and grace. With occasional visits to Paris and London, and a memorable trip to Scotland in 1823, when she was entertained at Abbotsford, she lived serene and happy at Edgeworth's town, until her sudden death, May 21, 1849. 
Miss Edgeworth was extremely small, not beautiful, but a brilliant talker, and a great favorite in the exclusive society to which she everywhere had access. Her greatest success was in the new field opened in her Irish stories, full of racy, rollicking Irish humor, and valuable pictures of bygone conditions, for the genial peasant of her pages is now rarely found. Not the least we owe her is the influence which her national tales had on Sir Walter Scott, who declared that her success led him to do the same for his own country in the Waverley novels. Miss Edgeworth's style is easy and animated. Her tales show her extraordinary power of observation, her good sense, and remarkable skill in dialogue though they are biased by the didactic purpose which permeates all her writings. As Madame de Stael remarked, she was lost in dreary utility, and doubtless this is why she just missed greatness and has been consigned to the ranks of standard authors who are respectfully alluded to but seldom read. The lack of tenderness and imagination was perhaps the result of her unusual self-control, shown in her custom of writing in the family sitting-room, and so concentrating her mind on her work that she was deaf to all that went on about her. Surely some of the creative power of her mind must have been lost in that strenuous effort." Her noble character, as well as her talents, won for her the friendship of many distinguished people of her day. With Scott she was intimate, Byron found her charming, and Macaulay was an enthusiastic admirer. In her recently edited letters are found many interesting and valuable accounts of the people she met in the course of her long life. Miss Edgeworth's Life has been written by Helen Zimmern and Grace A. Oliver. Her Life and Letters, edited by Augustus J. C. Hare, appeared in 1895. Pen Portraits of Literary Women by Helen Gray Cohn and Jeanette L. Gilder contains a sketch of her. Selection Sir Condy's Wake from Castle Rackrent by Maria Edgeworth. When they were made sensible that Sir Condy was going to leave Castle Rackrent for good and all, they set up a walala that could be heard to the farthest end of the street, and one fine boy he was, that my master had given an apple to that morning, cried the loudest, but they were all the same sorry, for Sir Condy was greatly beloved among the children, for letting them go a-nutting in the demence, without saying a word to them, though my lady objected to them. The people in the town, who were the most of them standing at their doors, hearing the children cry, would know the reason of it, and when the report was made known, the people, one and all, gathered in great anger against my son Jason, and terror at the notion of his coming to be landlord over them, and they cried, No, Jason, no, Jason, Sir Condy, Sir Condy, Sir Condy Rackrent forever. And the mob grew so great and so loud I was frightened, and made my way back to the house to warn my son to make his escape or hide himself for fear of the consequences. 
Jason would not believe me till they came all round the house and to the windows with great shouts. Then he grew quite pale, and asked Sir Condy what had he best do. "'I'll tell you what you'd best do,' said Sir Condy, who was laughing to see his fright. "'Finish your glass first, then let's go to the window and show ourselves, and I'll tell him, or you shall if you please, that I'm going to the lodge for change of air for my health, and by my own desire for the rest of my days.' "'Do so,' said Jason, who never meant it should have been so, but could not refuse him the lodge at this unseasonable time. Accordingly, Sir Condy threw up the sash, and explained matters, and thanked all his friends, and bid him look in at the punch-bowl, and observe that Jason and he had been sitting over it very good friends. So the mob was content, and he sent him out some whiskey to drink his health, and that was the last time his honour's health was ever drunk at Castle Rackrent. The very next day, being too proud, as he said to me, to stay an hour longer in a house that did not belong to him, he sets off to the lodge, and I along with him not many hours after. And there was great bemoaning through all O'Shanlin's town, which I stayed to witness, and gave my poor master a full account of when I got to the lodge. He was very low and in his bed when I got there, and complained of a great pain about his heart. But I guessed it was only trouble, and all the business, let alone vexation, he had gone through of late. And, knowing the nature of him from a boy, I took my pipe, and while smoking it by the chimney, began telling him how he was beloved, and regretted in the county, and it did him a deal of good to hear it. "'Your honour has a great many friends yet, that you don't know of, rich and poor in the country,' says I, for as I was coming along the road, I met two gentlemen in their own carriages who asked after you, knowing me, and wanted to know where you was.' and all about you, and even how old I was, think of that. Then he wakened out of his doze, and began questioning me who the gentlemen were. And the next morning it came into my head to go, unknown to anybody with my master's compliments, round to many of the gentlemen's houses, where he and my lady used to visit, and people that I knew were his great friends, and would go to Cork to serve him any day in the year, and I made bold to try to borrow a trifle of cash from them. They all treated me very civil for the most part, and asked a great many questions very kind about my lady and Sir Condy and all the family, and were greatly surprised to learn from me Castle Rackrent was sold and my master at the lodge for health, and they all pitied him greatly, and he had their good wishes, if that would do. But money was a thing they unfortunately had not any of them at this time to spare. I had my journey for my pains, and I, not used to walking, nor supple as formerly, was greatly tired, but had the satisfaction of telling my master, when I got to the lodge, all the civil things said by high and low. 
Fady, says he, all you've been telling me brings a strange thought into my head. I've a notion I shall not be long for this world anyhow, and I've a great fancy to see my own funeral afore I die. I was greatly shocked at the first speaking to hear him speak so light about his funeral, and he to all appearances in good health. But, recollecting myself, answered, to be sure it would be as fine a sight as one could see i dare to say and one i should be proud to witness and i did not doubt his honours would be as great a funeral as ever sir patrick o'shanlin's was and such a one as that had never been known in the county before or since but i never thought he was in earnest about seeing his own funeral himself till the next day he returns to it again Thady, says he, as far as the wake goes, sure I might without any great trouble have the satisfaction of seeing a bit of my own funeral. Well, since your honour's honour's so bent upon it, says I, not willing to cross him and he in trouble, we must see what we can do. So he fell into a sort of a sham disorder, which was easy done, as he kept his bed and no one to see him. And I got my shister, who was an old woman very handy about the sick, and very skilful, to come up to the lodge to nurse him, and we gave out, she knowing no better, that he was just at his latter end, and it answered beyond anything, and there was a great throng of people, men, women, and children, and there being only two rooms at the lodge, except what was locked up full of Jason's furniture and things, the house was soon as full and fuller than it could hold, and the heat and smoke and noise wonderful great, and standing among them that were near the bed, but not thinking at all of the dead, I was startled by the sound of my master's voice from under the greatcoats that had been thrown all at top, and I went close up, no one noticing. Thady, says he, I've had enough of this, I'm smothering, and can't hear a word of all they're saying of the deceased. God bless you, and lie still and quiet, says I, a bit longer, for my shister's afraid of ghosts, and would die on the spot with fright. Was she to see you come to life all on a sudden this way without the least preparation? So he lays him still, though well-nigh stifled, and I made all haste to tell the secret of the joke, whispering to one and t'other, and there was a great surprise, but not so great as we had laid out it would. And aren't we to have the pipes and tobacco, after coming so far to-night, says some. But they were all well enough pleased when his honour got up to drink with them, and sent for more spirits from a shabine house, where they very civilly let him have it upon credit. So the night passed off very merrily, but to my mind Sir Condy was rather upon the sad order in the midst of it all, not finding there had been such a great talk about himself after his death as he had always expected to hear. Selection Sir Murtaugh Rackrent and His Lady from Castle Rackrent by Maria Edgeworth now it was that the world was to see what was in Sir Patrick. On coming into the estate, he gave the finest entertainment ever was heard of in the country. Not a man could stand after supper but Sir Patrick himself, 
who could sit out the best man in Ireland, let alone the three kingdoms itself. He had his house, from one year's end to another, as full of company as ever it could hold, and fuller, for rather than be left out of the parties at Castle Rackrent, many gentlemen, and those men of the first consequence, and landed estates in the country, such as the O'Neills of Ballinagrotti, and the Moneygalls of Mount Juliet's Town, and O'Shannons of Newtown Tullyhog, made it their choice often and often, when there was no moon to be had for love nor money, in long winter nights, to sleep in the chicken house which Sir Patrick had fitted up for the purpose of accommodating his friends and the public in general, who honoured him with their company unexpectedly at Castle Rackrent. And this went on, I can't tell you, how long. The whole country rang with his praises. Long life to him. I'm sure I love to look upon his picture, now opposite to me, though I never saw him. He must have been a portly gentleman, his neck something short, and remarkable for the largest pimple on his nose, which, by his particular desire, is still extant in his picture, said to be a striking likeness, though taken when young. He is said also to be the inventor of raspberry whisky, which is very likely as nobody has ever appeared to dispute it with him, and as there still exists a broken punch-bowl at Castle Rackrent in the garret, with an inscription to that effect, a great curiosity. A few days before his death he was very merry, it being his honour's birthday. He called my grandfather in, God bless him, to drink the company's health, and filled a bumper himself, but could not carry it to his head on account of the great shake in his hand. On this he cast his joke, saying, What would my poor father say to me if he was to pop out of the grave and see me now? I remember when I was a little boy the first bumper of claret he gave me after dinner, how he praised me for carrying it so steady to my mouth. Here's my thanks to him, a bumper toast, then he fell to singing the favorite song he learned from his father for the last time, Poor Gentleman. He sung it that night as loud and as hearty as ever with a chorus. He that goes to bed and goes to bed sober falls as the leaves do, falls as the leaves do, and dies in October. But he that goes to bed and goes to bed mellow lives as he ought to do, lives as he ought to do, and dies an honest fellow. Sir Patrick died that night, just as the company rose to drink his health with three cheers. He fell down in a sort of fit and was carried off. They sat it out and were surprised on inquiry in the morning to find that it was all over with poor Sir Patrick. Never did any gentleman live and die more beloved in the country by rich and poor. His funeral was such a one as was never known before or since in the county. All the gentlemen in the three counties were at it, far and near. How they flocked! My great-grandfather said that to see all the women, even in their red cloaks, you would have taken them for the army drawn out. Then such a fine Wallula! 
you might have heard it to the farthest end of the county, and happy the man who could get but a sight of the hearse. But who'd have thought it, just as all was going on right, through his own town they were passing, when the body was seized for debt, a rescue was apprehended from the mob, but the heir who attended the funeral was against that for fear of consequences, seeing that those villains who came to serve acted under the disguise of the law. So, to be sure, the law must take its course, and little gain had the creditors for their pains. First and foremost they had the curses of the country, and Sir Murtaugh Grackrent, the new heir, in the next place, on account of this affront to the body, refused to pay a shilling of the debts, in which he was countenanced by all the best gentlemen of property, and others of his acquaintance. Sir Murtaugh, alleging in all companies, that he all along meant to pay his father's debts of honour, but the moment the law was taken of him there was an end of honour, to be sure. It was whispered, but none but the enemies of the family believed it, that this was all a sham seizure, to get quit of the debts which he had bound himself to pay in honour. It's a long time ago, there's no saying how it was, but this for certain, the new man did not take at all after the old gentleman, the cellars were never filled after his death and no open house or anything as it used to be the tenants even were sent away without their whisky i was ashamed myself and knew not what to say for the honour of the family but i made the best of a bad case and laid it all at my lady's door for i did not like her anyhow nor anybody else she was of the family of the Skinflints, and a widow. It was a strange match for Sir Murtaugh. The people in the country thought he demeaned himself greatly, but I said nothing. I knew how it was. Sir Murtaugh was a great lawyer, and looked to the great Skinflint estate. There, however, he overshot himself, for though one of the co-heiresses, he was never the better for her, for she outlived him many's the long day. He could not see that, to be sure, when he married her. I must say for her, she made him the best of wives, being a very notable, starring woman, and looking close to everything. But I always suspected she had Scotch blood in her veins, anything else i could have looked over in her from a regard to the family she was a strict observer for self and servants of lent and all fast days but not holy days one of the maids having fainted three times the last day of lent to keep soul and body together we put a morsel of roast beef in her mouth which came from sir murtaugh's dinner who never fasted not he but somehow or other it unfortunately reached my lady's ears and the priest of the parish had a complaint made of it the next day and the poor girl was forced as soon as she could walk to do penance for it before she could get any peace or absolution in the house or out of it however my lady was very charitable in her own way 
She had a charity school for poor children, where they were taught to read and write gratis, and where they were kept well to spinning gratis for my lady in return, for she had always heaps of duty yarn from the tenants, and got all her household linen out of the estate from first to last, for after the spinning the weavers on the estate took it in hand for nothing. Because of the looms my lady's interest could get from the linen board to distribute gratis. Then there was a bleach-yard near us, and the tenant dare refuse my lady nothing, for fear of a lawsuit Sir Murtagh kept hanging over him about the water-course. With these ways of managing, tis surprising how cheap my lady got things done, and how proud she was of it. Her table, the same way, kept for next to nothing. Duty fowls and duty turkeys and duty geese came as fast as we could eat em, for my lady kept a sharp lookout, and knew to a tub of butter everything the tenants had all round. They knew her way, and what with fear of driving for rent and Sir Murtaugh's lawsuits, they were kept in such good order they never thought of coming near Castle Rackrent without a present of something or other, nothing too much or too little for my lady. Eggs, honey, butter, meal, fish, game, grouse and herrings, fresh or salt, all went for something." As for their young pigs, we had them, and the best bacon and hams they could make up, with all young chickens in spring. But they were a set of poor wretches, and we had nothing but misfortunes with them, always breaking and running away. This, Sir Murtaugh and my lady said, was all their former landlord Sir Patrick's fault, who let them all get the half-year's rent into arrear. There was something in that, to be sure." But Sir Martog was as much the contrary way, for let alone making English tenants of them every soul, he was always driving and driving and pounding and pounding, and canting and canting and replevying and replevying, and he made a good living of trespassing cattle. There was always some tenant's pig or horse or cow or calf or goose trespassing, which was so great a gain to Sir Murtaugh that he did not like to hear me talk of repairing fences. Then his Harriet's and duty work brought him in something. His turf was cut, his potatoes set and dug, his hay brought home, and in short all the work about his house done for nothing." for in all our leases there were strict clauses heavy with penalties, which Sir Murtaugh knew well how to enforce. So many days duty work of man and horse from every tenant he was to have, and had every year. And when a man vexed him, why, the finest day he could pitch on, when the crater was getting in his own harvest, or thatching his cabin, Sir Murtaugh made it a principle to call upon him and his horse, so he taught him all, as he said, to know the law of landlord and tenant. As for law, I believe no man, dead or alive, ever loved it so well as Sir Murtaugh. He had once sixteen suits pending at a time, and I never saw him so much himself, roads, lanes, bogs, wells, ponds, eel-weirs, 
orchards, trees, tithes, vagrants, gravel pits, sand pits, dung hills, and nuisances, everything upon the face of the earth furnished him good matter for a suit. He used to boast that he had a lawsuit for every letter in the alphabet. How I used to wonder to see Sir Murtaugh in the midst of the papers in his office. Why, he could hardly turn about for them. I made bold to shrug my shoulders once in his presence, and thank my stars I was not born a gentleman to so much toil and trouble. But Sir Murtaugh took me up short with his old proverb, Learning is better than house or land. Out of forty-nine suits which he had, he never lost one but seventeen. The rest he gained with costs, double costs, treble costs sometimes, but even that did not pay. He was a very learned man in the law, and had the character of it, but how it was I can't tell. These suits that he carried cost him a power of money. In the end he sold some hundreds a year of the family estate, but he was a very learned man in the law, and I knew nothing of the matter, except having a great regard for the family. And I could not help grieving when he sent me to post up notices of the sale of the fee simple of the lands and appurtenances of Timolique. I know, honest Thady, says he, to comfort me, what I'm about better than you do. I'm only selling to get the ready money wanting to carry on my suit with spirit with the Nugents of Karikashalin. He was very sanguine about that suit with the Nugents of Karikashalin. He could have gained it, they say, for certain, had it pleased heaven to have spared him to us, and it would have been at the least a plump two thousand a year in his way. But things were ordered otherwise for the best, to be sure. He dug up a fairy mount against my advice, and had no luck afterward. Though a learned man in the law, he was a little too incredulous in other matters. I warned him that I heard the very banshee that my grandfather heard under Sir Patrick's window a few days before his death. But Sir Murtaugh thought nothing of the banshee, nor of his cough with a spitting of blood, brought on, I understand, by catching cold in attending the courts, and overstraining his chest, with making himself heard in one of his favorite causes. He was a great speaker, with a powerful voice, but his last speech was not in the courts at all. He and my lady, though both of the same way of thinking in some things, and though she was as good a wife and great economist as you could see, and he the best of husbands, as to looking into his affairs and making money for his family, yet I don't know how it was they had a great deal of sparring and jarring between them. My lady had her privy purse, and she had her weed ashes, and her sealing money upon the signing of all the leases, with something to buy gloves besides, and besides again often took money from the tenants, if offered properly, to speak for them to Sir Murtaugh about abatements and renewals. Now the weed ashes and the glove money he allowed her clear perquisites, though once when he saw her in a new gown saved out of the weed ashes, he told her to my face, for he could say a sharp thing, that she should not put on her weeds before her husband's death. 
but in a dispute about an abatement my lady would have the last word and sir murtagh grew mad i was within hearing of the door and now i wish i had made bold to step in he spoke so loud the whole kitchen was out on the stairs all on a sudden he stopped and my lady too something has surely happened thought i and so it was for sir murtagh in his passion broke a blood vessel and all the law in the land could do nothing in that case my lady sent for five physicians but sir murtagh died and was buried she had a fine jointure settled upon her and took herself away to the great joy of the tenantry i never said anything one way or the other while she was part of the family but got up to see her go at three o'clock in the morning it's a fine morning honest thady says she good-bye to ye and into the carriage she stepped without a word more good or bad or even half a crown but i made my bow and stood to see her safe out of sight for the sake of the family End of section 9. Maria Edgeworth.